Hey, we just wanted to take a minute to thank you for listening to our podcast. We're really happy that you're enjoying the podcast and we love hearing from you. Yes, I've loved making this podcast with you, Lee. When we started doing this, I had no idea how to use a mixer or how to edit. <laughs> and now that we've been doing this for over a year, I still don't know how to use a mixer or how to edit. I might even know less than when we started. Well, at least you can say you certainly know a lot more about Northern Exposure. And we hope the listeners out there have gained something too. Anyway, if you like to listen to us ramble on about the minute details and the big ideas, you know, the, the color of Joel's shirt or obscure trivia like Anwar, then you should consider subscribing to our brand new Patreon page. Yes, once a month, we'll be posting an exclusive bonus episode about movies and television shows and themes related to Northern Exposure on the Patreon. We've already got this month's bonus episode available on our Patreon page. We cover the directorial debut of Rob Morrow, you know, Dr. Fleischman. It's the film Maze from the year 2000. And since this is the very first time we've started a Patreon, we wanted to throw in a little incentive to get the ball rolling. When you become a patron, we're going to mail you a custom-made postcard designed by Laser Kitties, who designed our podcast artwork. And these postcards look incredible. They have this nostalgic feeling you got when you visited those mom-and-pop gas station stores your parents stopped at on the family vacation road trip. You go inside and grab a bag of combos, pizza flavor of course, and vanilla Coke. And look at the rack with postcards that read greetings from Little Rock in those big block letterings. But these postcards will be about Sicily, Alaska and all things Northern Exposure. Yeah, we're going to write you a message or doodle something on the back, something unique for every postcard. We've even got a bonus tier for the first 50 patrons. You can get the Maze bonus episode and a postcard from us for just $1. Just $1? Just $1. We love making the podcast, but it takes up a long part of our weeks to record, research, and then edit it all down. But that's not going to stop us. We are dedicated to Northern Exposure and to the fans of the show. If you want to help us out and support the podcast, we'll take all the help we can get. We just want to make sure you get a little something extra for being there along the way. Please check out our Patreon page. That's patreon.com slash Northern Overexposure Podcast and become a patron today. Isn't that the point of this merry-go-round Throw out all those stale assumptions, keep shopping for a fresh baked perspective. Cosi la mare, que viena y va, joya e dolore, sempre chida. Such is love that comes and goes, joy and sadness, it's always that way. Lee, when I was in high school, I had a teacher that taught French, and she told us a story of one time she was asking students what other languages they spoke now that they're about to learn French. And some people said like, oh, I speak Spanish. One student might have been like, oh, I speak a little bit of French also. And then one student raised her hand and said, I speak Italian. And the French teacher said, oh, really? Uh, can you speak some Italian for us right now? And the student said, this is Italian right here. I can speak it. Very easy language. And the French teacher was like, oh, that is not the Italian language. Oh, no. <laughs> How offensive. I love how like it's like abhorrent to to put on an accent for most cultures. Like if you're imitating, for instance, like a Chinese accent, that is totally like abhorrent if you're just mocking. 
But for some reason, you can do an Italian accent, and it's just hilarious because it's just a jovial. Maybe it's because they're they're you know predominantly white people. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, it's the same thing with uh, Irish accents and Scottish yeah. accents. Like you just dive right into that. Yeah, like groundskeeper Willie on The Simpsons. He's not gonna get flamed for not being voiced by a Scottish actor. Right. Right. Oh uh, wow, there is a bit of uh, you know obviously lots of Italian in this episode. I like lots of um, like there's accordion that kind of uh, gives gives that sort of vibe maybe in the uh, in the score, and uh, I was gonna say, are there any like cheesy Italian accents? I think most people are actually when they talk, they will speak in Italian, though though it's not subtitled, so most of the stuff I couldn't understand. No, I tried to use the Google Translate app and the Translate app that's built into my phone now, but I was only able to get like hints of what they were saying maybe because it just couldn't translate well through the computer like it wasn't hearing very well but no i have no idea what they were saying this episode thankfully chris uh immediately gives us the translation here you know after he says it he says such is love that comes and goes joy and sadness it's always that way but there were some portions of the episode again that weren't subtitled like there's a scene when ed i think first has like a dream that he's at the American Film Institute Awards or something. And he starts speaking in Italian. And, and I was trying very hard to figure out, I think he's talking about like bread and soup, but I, I couldn't really understand what he's saying. <laughs> do you know, do you remember? I don't yeah, know. Yeah, where he's, uh, he's getting a Lifetime Achievement Award? Yeah, and then he like, as he's, as that like dream sequence is winding down, he starts speaking in Italian. Uh, it's not subtitled, but... He says like I don't know. He says pan, I think something like that, which is which is bread in like in French or Spanish, and I think he says something that means soup. I, I actually asked some friends right before we started recording Charles, but I didn't really get a convincing translation from anyone yet. Uh, I think that Ed probably learned Italian by learning the Olive Garden menu. <laughs> and he's just reciting what he learned. Maybe that yeah, maybe that is the joke because you know Italians have amazing cuisine. So, you know, you only kind of like the menu, like the French the French restaurant menu. That's all you can really say. What, what are we talking about, Charles? Okay, so what we're talking about is Northern Exposure, the 1990s CBS television sitcom series. My name is Charles. This is my first time watching the television series, uh, watching it with fresh eyes, trying to get some new perspectives for my veteran host, Lee. That's right. My name is Lee, and I've seen this show a lot um, you know, I say, I say quite a few times, I say a lot. Let me actually, how many times have I seen this? I think I, the reason I say that is because the first two seasons I've watched a lot, like countless times. But you know, when it comes to like the sixth season, I've probably only seen that once. Fourth and fifth season, which we're in now, um, I feel like I've seen two to three times. But I find that the closer, the further I get into the show, the less I remember. Um, but this is an episode I somewhat remember. This is an episode called On Your Own. The original air date was November 9th, 1992. Uh, again, this is season four. This is the sixth episode in the season. And it was directed by Joan Tukesbury. Not really sure how to pronounce it, but I found, uh, I found this interesting because she was you know, a director, but also she was the screenwriter for the Robert Altman films Thieves Like Us and Nashville. Oh, Wow. That's really interesting right there. Uh, have you seen Nashville? I haven't seen either, but as I understand, Nashville is uh, is a really good movie and I believe won 
I was going to say it won some awards, but it did. It won the BAFTA award for best screenplay. Mm, okay. Uh, this episode is really interesting. It's got a very interesting guest, or as I would call them, guests. They have the movement shots. Right. So I'm actually not familiar, um, I guess, apart from just Northern Exposure with movement shots, but I was looking it up, you know, because you see that title at the beginning of the episode, you know, when they say, you know, guest starring, I forget his name, as Mike Monroe, you know, like the the new the new guest cast uh, members. And then they mention it's titled up there, Moomin Shots. And if you Google it, uh, yeah, they have like the toilet paper roll guy. It's the exact same thing as you would be seeing in this episode. Yeah, initially I didn't know they were guest starring. I missed the the cast billing at mm-hmm. the, the top of the episode. And I knew something was up there because as talented as the costume designers were i just didn't think they could design that or it would be appropriate for them to design that with their own budgetary restraints of those costumes and i was thinking i was like hang on something's up with this like this isn't ordinary like it seems so iconic or something Uh, yeah it was too iconic like your eyeballs were drawn to it too strongly and i was like hang on something's up with this yeah i don't really know too much about it i guess other than uh it's sort of in the same realm of what you might imagine like um like a Cirque du Soleil or like a traveling act, you know? Yeah, very experimental theater is how I would call it. It's crazy that Sicily, Alaska, this like middle of nowhere place gets so many uh, just like extraordinary guests. But I mean, that I guess that's the whole idea of the show is like someone new comes to town and we live in this world. Yeah, even extraordinary situations because apparently Federico Fellini's ring can end up here. Exactly. And what was, there's an episode with like uh, a soldier from the Battle of Waterloo. His body was found frozen in like a block of ice in, you know, near Sicily, Alaska. So all things lead to Sicily, it seems. So we start off this episode with Joel and Ed just teeing off some, I think they're golf balls, but I'm not too sure. They're bright orange. Oh yeah, I forgot about that. The co- It's like a weird color, but no, I think those are golf balls. But um, what's interesting, obviously the the color is out of character. You expect like a white golf ball, but um, also the, I guess you would call that the club that Joel is using is something he, I don't know if he mentions in this first scene, but he'll, he'll later, he'll call it the sound stroke. It's some invention by some dentist uh, that is supposed to, I assume, help you with your stroke. Yeah, I tried looking it up and let me make sure, let me make sure. Because I typed it in, I didn't get anything, but I didn't type I in Soundstroke yeah, Golf I Club. I don't think it's real, actually, but... Yeah, it's made up uh, for Northern Exposure, but it's a quirky little device. It looks like it's two clubs. Yeah, it's like, like it's like your normal golf club, but it has sort of like another tube attachment that runs parallel to the shaft of the golf club. Yeah, I guess it's supposed to distribute weight more evenly toward the end of it. I, I can't really understand the mechanisms behind it. I don't really know how golf works, but I know that... It requires you just from, I only know this, I guess, from watching movies and TV and uh, <laughs> it's like golf requires you to have like some crazy posture and you have to, like your swing has to be perfected. I guess it's just the way, I don't know, the force and the momentum travels through your body and hits that ball is very specific to get like a good stroke or something. That sounds very technical. I, I only know golf from uh, the movie Space Jam, where Michael Jordan is golfing in the beginning. And, <laughs> With uh, Bill Murray, uh, right? Yeah. <laughs> and uh, Putt-Putt. Uh, those, yeah. are all, those are only golfing knowledge. Classic. Uh, yeah, I got to love some Putt-Putt. Um, I do love 
this uh, the vibe of this opening scene because it has this uh, you know this music that is featured uh, a lot in this television show. It's like that jazzy clarinet. I think they often use it to evoke sort of New York and Joel's um, life before Sicily, perhaps. And um, yeah, I just love I love this image of Joel golfing and Ed caddying. Like we see that I think in the first season um, in uh, an episode called dreams, schemes, and putting greens. And that was just a, I don't know, it's, it's recalling that memory. It's, it's a good setup for this episode just to get us in the right mood to um, hang out in Sicily for a while. So we next see the return of Bob, the flying man with yeah. his three friends, Bernie, Hans, and Fritz. That's right. It's like, who, okay, so who are they? Hans is probably the hand, right? I remember a hand. And then Bernie and Fritz, are they like the tube slinky people? Can't remember. I... Don't know because it looks like they changed costumes, right? Oh, uh, I guess. Well, we we see a lot of the same costumes, like the blockheads, the toilet paper mm-hmm. rolls. Um, so I don't know if we've all we've ever seen like the entire troop at once. So maybe it is just two or three people changing costumes. But uh, no, I'd, I'd like to imagine that they because they never even whenever they go to the brick and eat food or they're like driving a car, they stay in costume. I thought that was funny at the very end of the episode. Like one of the blockheads is driving a car. I thought it would be hilarious if it just like instantly crashed because they're wearing like a a box on their head and they can't see where they're going. Well, I didn't see anyone else in that truck, which led me to believe that it was just those three individuals. Oh, that's right. So when they do leave, wow. Okay. So maybe you're onto something. It is like Bernie, Fritz and Hans. It's only ever three. I just watched this episode, but I wasn't keeping track of that at all. Uh, I, 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 I thought how strange it was, though, because you're right. They do have them coming into costume into the brick multiple times. So maybe they're in between costume changes, and that's when they go to the brick. So that would explain it. This is, yeah. <laughs> this is like, dude, we're like trying to overanalyze it. <laughs> okay, so it's Bernie, Hans, Fritz, and they're joining Bob, and they're meeting Marilyn. They're reunited. Yeah, Bernie, uh, sorry, Bob, the flying man. Um, I think his, like... Stage name was Enrico Bellotti. I know Bellotti is his, uh, is like the surname of his, um, his stage name. And, uh, we get kind of some of these kind of like stuff that we've already seen before, um, with Bob and Marilyn, um, Bob, I guess I'm getting ahead of myself. Um, but Bob ends up having like sort of a picnic with Marilyn, which I think is almost like exactly the same scene as the last time we saw the flying man. Do you know what I'm talking about? Yeah, I remember that. I think it's purposely meant to mirror like that first scene. Yeah, because at that when I was watching the episode, I was like, okay, I've already seen this already. Why? What's what's important about me watching this again? And I still have beef with that that, that we're watching like the exact same <laughs> scene again. But there is some change throughout this episode uh, with the flying man that I like, and and um, you know with their relationship between Marilyn and the flying man. But I guess um, the obvious first thing change is that the flying man can't fly right now. He's got a, he's got like a leg injury or something. Yeah. He lost his ability to fly. He lost his wings. Uh, At first I thought it was a mental issue. I thought there was something going on with him psychologically, but then no, it turns out that he just injured his leg. Yeah. He said like, uh, well, he doesn't speak remember. So he like uses hand signals. And I think Marilyn translates it to mean, you know, he kind of like 
stuck the landing or, or messed up the landing and kind of hurt his foot. All right, well, let's just stay with this plot line for a little bit. So we see that Bob shows up at Joel's office along with... Flo? Fritz? No, there is a new character, oh, Flo. No, wait, I have wait, it written down. Flo, you're so right. So there is more than just, uh, than just the three. Oh, you're right. Flo from Progressive. <laughs> but inside of this uh, slinky, one of those slinky costumes. Yeah, and he needs to have his foot checked out. And this is where it's very interesting that they brought back Bob because Bob is relaying back to Joel again that he does not speak, not because he has a physical inability to or even a mental inability to. It's just that for some reason, he doesn't speak and Joel's trying to re-diagnose him. And it's interesting because it parallels what's going on with Mike. Yeah, because it's not a physical cause, I think. Actually, there's some Latin in here, I believe, that uh, Joel says that I was able to translate. He says, morbus sine causa corporea, no physical cause disease. So um, that's what he, I think, ultimately determines is what's wrong with, you know, the flying man's voice that we kind of figure out uh, in a bit, you know, whenever the flying man talks with Marilyn, we kind of see what what's uh, what's going on there. But in this scene so far, uh, Joel is just kind of pressing the flying man and asking, like you said, asking if he'd like to undergo some more testing or try to figure out what's going on. And uh, Bob seems pretty agreeable. Yeah, he goes along with it. And Joel mentions that it also wouldn't be due to an emotional tragedy or like some sort of traumatic experience. And the Bob says, no, it's not due to that. But it kind of is like it's not world shattering. But at the end of the episode, it is revealed that he can speak and he chooses not to because he finds it very difficult to convey his thoughts and that every word is like a stone, which is, it must have been brought on in some context. Yeah, like I guess something must have happened to him or I don't know, maybe it's a thing because he does mention, well, we're in it, so let's let's dive in. He mentions <laughs> like uh, he's just never been good with words. And uh, maybe he's better at ex expressing himself, I guess, with his hands, but also just in other ways. So, you know, maybe that, are you suggesting, Charles, maybe he had something happen to him when he was young that made him just want to stop talking? Yeah, that's what I was led to believe, uh, at least through my interpretation of the words, is that maybe some sort of event caused him to rethink his decision to speak, or he just had a mental epiphany to say, like, oh, well, every single time I do speak, it can inadvertently affect another individual. Uh, my words have meaning and power behind them. I'm going to just stop speaking so that I don't become misinterpreted or I cause harm. Either way, I would still think that there is a before-after between those, whichever one of the two it would have been. So the line of demarcation is there. And I guess it doesn't necessarily have to be an emotionally tragic event, but it's still something, and that is the cause. Yeah, I think I might say it's it's maybe more of that second thing that you're mentioning. Perhaps he never spoke a lot, you know, growing up or in his life. You know, maybe he never had to speak a lot. And anytime when he did talk, it would either just make things harder for him or just not be as effective as he would want it to be. So... I don't know. Yeah. I mean, this is, de we're definitely speculating here, but um, the d explanation for it in this episode is kind of more figurative, more poetic. It's after Marilyn, 
they have that sort of picnic date that I mentioned is kind of just a rehash of the last time they were together. And then I think at after like a Moominshan's performance, um, the flying man gets down on his knees and is like begging her. And he actually speaks. First he speaks like in sort of this wide shot. So we don't actually see, we don't actually see his mouth, but we understand he's saying like, please, I love you. And she ends up turning him down. Yeah, really tragic punch to the gut right there. We can all, <laughs> we, we've all been there, Bob. It's, it's, it's all right, man. <laughs> and he ends up kind of um, reflecting in nature. I think he's sitting on like a tree stump and Marilyn finds him and asks if she can join. She sits by him and they kind of talk about it. Uh, here, let's play the soundbite. Why don't you talk? Not good with words. Words are a heavy thing. Like rocks. They weigh you down. If birds talk, they couldn't fly. So maybe actually, maybe we're being a little too figurative with his explanation. Maybe there is a literal reason why he doesn't talk is because if he started talking, he couldn't use his superpower of flight. Like do words mm. actually, is it, is he just like using this as a metaphor or is there actual literal cost of him talking? Like, will it make him not fly? Ah, uh, porquandola does. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I like that. I, I like that uh, little saying that she says that if birds could speak, they couldn't fly. I mean, birds can sing. So, but, but I mean, you know, that doesn't necessarily disqualify her metaphor there because, you know, singing is not the same as speech. You know, obviously birds aren't speaking with words, uh, but they're expressing with melody. Yeah, I think that maybe what they mean is that metaphorically, the flying man needs to contain his emotions so that he can use them to buoy himself to fly upwards. Wow, yeah, that's actually a good, I like that a lot. It's it's not so much just like speech, but kind of his emotions, his, maybe would you, you could even, okay, if you use that idea, you could say that maybe he was so heartbroken for not seeing Marilyn for so long that that could have resulted in his crash, uh, ultimately, you know, taking away his power of flight. Ah, so he's grounded. Okay. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, so I think uh, at the end of the scene, Marilyn extends her hand and is, you know, holding hands with Bob. And um, that's not the last time we see Bob and Marilyn. I think the next time we see them is... Uh, Again, when Moominshans is leaving Sicily, um, Marilyn hands Joel a uh, couple rocks, right? Oh, wait, hang on. That plays neatly into our metaphor then because then that means nothing is holding him down. Oh, yeah, because now I guess because he does fly again at the end of the episode. I guess we did skip. Sorry. Uh, uh, Joel removes the cast on uh, the flying man's foot. And uh, basically tells the flying man, he's like, you look, uh, I don't know. There's no physical cause. I don't know what it could be. Maybe we can figure this out. The flying man unfortunately has to leave. So until next time. Uh, and yeah, Marilyn gives Joel a handful of rocks just to really punch in that metaphor, that meaning at the end there. I feel <laughs> like it's a little heavy handed, but I do. I appreciate the poetry of it, you know. Yeah, I mean, if you thought that was heavy-handed, there is a curlew at the end of the episode. Another bird. A curlew? What's that? A uh, curlew? It's a type of bird. Oh, okay, yeah, because that, that's when, like, Mike and Maggie are walking about. They spot a curlew. Actually, yeah. I saw that in the subtitles, but I I actually don't know. I don't even know if I've ever seen a curlew. Uh, I, I've 
I think I had the Beanie Baby of the Curly oh, when I was it's younger. It's got like a I, tiny little beak. Those are cool. Yeah, yeah. It's like the super long, like it's similar to the Pelican uh, in a little bit of ways. Well, that kind of does it for Marilyn and Bob. They part ways. Um, I feel like a lot, you know, we'll talk about this when we get sort of to the conclusion of all of our storylines, but this kind of ties in nicely with uh, a theme of sort of... Uh, you know, not not necessarily moving forward romantically, but staying friends. And I think that's happening here with Bob and Marilyn. But let's pivot now to Ed. We mentioned he was caddying in this uh, opening scene, but he's got a lot more to do in this episode, which is uh, pretty fun, pretty funny. So Ed, I believe, begins the episode in sort of a rut with, um, does he call it writer's block or director's block? But He calls it director's block. Yeah. Okay. Go ahead. Yeah. So he's having trouble trying to come up. Uh, I, I guess where he wants to go I- creatively. He's finding that he has no inspiration, and he uh, at one point doesn't even want to give up filmmaking. Yeah. I feel like um, we always think of Ed as a filmmaker, and he does shoot a lot of film. But I think he's he suffers from that a lot. Not necessarily director's block, but the idea of um, maybe what it takes to be an artist or him trying to see himself as an artist, like I guess the imposter syndrome. He he doesn't really have um, the confidence yet of a master maybe, but um, no, I, I wouldn't take that away from him. And, and thankfully he doesn't lose, uh, he actually gains some inspiration, maybe too much in this episode. But before we get to that sort of like weird enchanting moment of, of him like suddenly becoming this master filmmaker, um, he is still... In this quandary, I like the scene when he's fishing with Dave and a couple other guys, and they're talking about, you know, different types of blocks. Like Dave has this this block when he was in the kitchen, like he couldn't, uh, he would always crack his eggs and like break the yolks accidentally, and just nothing would go right in the kitchen. He said he's almost wanted to give up, I guess. And um, another guy who's fishing recounts a story of a baseball player. I just want to play this bite. It could happen to anybody. Look at Connie Colbert. Well, who's that? Rookie right-hander for the Phillies. Won 11 games. Bonus baby. Came back next year. Couldn't even find a plate. Really? He had his eyes examined. Took some big orthopedist in L.A. Even took him to a head shrinker. What happened to him? He went into sales. Oh. I don't even know if that's actually a real baseball player, but I just thought it was funny. He went into sales. That's like the dead end, like rock bottom (laughs) if you fail at being what you want to be. I like that it didn't go into the traditional art forms in which you can come into quote unquote writer's block. They use Dave for his cooking and they use his baseball player. So you can see your passion or whatever your art form may be and you can still come into trouble with that. And I think oftentimes we forget about that where we think that art can only be either acting or writing or directing, uh, painting, the standard forms of art. But, you know, there's nothing wrong with cooking or playing baseball. That itself can be an art form. Yeah, and I don't think we catch his name, but the the guy who's recounting the story of this baseball player, Dave mentions that uh, this guy also had trouble in bed. He had like block in bed. Um, so yeah, it, you know, this, I, I do like the idea of, uh, taking art into different forms, not just the, the ones that we always talk about, but also the idea that, um, blocks can come in many different forms, like not being able to cook, not being able to 
what is it? Is he a pitcher or a batter? You know, just all these things that can stave you off from not just art, but um, your passion. I like the, the way you put that, Charles. All right. So with the next scene, we see that Ed is cooking dinner for Ruth Ann with the fish that he caught. Yeah, I think the scene opens with Ed talking about the bait that they use. He calls it stink bait made from cheeseway and anchovies. He says it works every time. And uh, yeah, Ruth Ann is very impressed. The dinner looks pretty great. And uh, they start eating. I think it's it's coincidental because Ruth Ann says, you know, don't give up. You'll be surprised. Inspiration will hit out of nowhere. And then as soon as she says that, Ed um, has bitten down on something, uh, I guess, much thicker than a fish bone. He spits out uh, a ring. Yeah, he spits out a ring owned by one Federico Fellini, though couldn't it be disputed that it was just a coincidence? Exactly, yeah. Well, we we attribute this ring to Federico Fellini because the inscription inside says FF, and it says, Con amore, Giulietta. I, li- I really like Ed in the scene. He says, um, yes, it means with love, Con amore. It says FF, Con amore, Giulietta. Con amore, Italian, isn't it? Yes, ma'am. It means with love. It's not yet that we begin to attribute it to Federico, but I think directly after this dinner, Ed has a dream. And I think after that dream, there's no question that it's not Federico Fellini, at least for Ed. Mm, okay. Are you familiar with the fairy tale of the fish in the ring? Oh, no. Tell me about it. Okay, so it's an English fairy tale by the author of Joseph Jacobs. And this is how it goes. So once upon a time, there was a mighty baron in the North Country. He was a great magician that knew everything that would come to pass. So one day, when his little boy was four years old, he looked into the book of fate to see what would happen to him. And to his dismay, he found that his son would wed a lowly maid that had just been born in a house under the shadow of York Minister. Now the baron knew the father of the little girl was very, very poor, and he had five children already. So he called for his horse and rode into York, and passed by the father's house, and saw him sitting by the door, sad and doleful. So he dismounted and went up to him and said, What is the matter, my good man? And the man said, Well, your honor, the fact is, I've five children already, and now a six come, a little lass, and where to get the bread from to fill their mouths, that's more than I can say. Don't be downhearted, my man, said the baron. If that's your trouble, I can help you. I'll take away the last little one, and you won't have to bother about her. Thank you kindly, sir, said the man, and he went in and brought out the lass and gave her to the baron, who mounted his horse and rode away with her. And when he got by the bank of the river Ouse, he threw the little thing into the river and rode off to his castle. (laughs) But the little lass didn't sink. Her clothes kept her up for a time, and she floated and she floated till she was cast ashore just in front of a fisherman's hut. There, the fisherman found her and took pity on the poor little thing and took her into his house, and she lived there till she was 15 years old and a fine, handsome girl. One day, it happened that the baron went out hunting with some companions along the banks of the river Ouse and stopped at the fisherman's hut to get a drink, and the girl came out to give it to them. They all noticed her beauty, and one of them said to the baron, You can read fates, baron. Whom shall we marry, she'll think. Oh, that's easy to guess, said the baron. Some yako or other but I'll cast a horoscope. Come here, girl, and tell me on what day you were born. I don't know, sir, said the girl. I was picked up just here after having been brought down by the river about 15 years ago. Then the Baron knew who she was, and when they went away, 
he rode back and said to the girl, Hark ye, girl, I will make your fortune. Take this letter to my brother in Scarsboro, and you will be settled for life. And the girl took the letter and said she would go. Now this is what he had written in the letter. Dear brother, take the bear and put her to death immediately. <laughs> Yours affectionately, Albert. So soon after the girl set out for Scarsboro and slept for the night at a little inn, that very night, a band of robbers broke into the inn and searched the girl, who had no money and only the letter. So they opened this and read it and thought it a shame. The captain of the robbers took a pen and paper and wrote this letter. Dear brother, take the bear and marry her to my son immediately. Yours affectionately, Albert. And then he gave it to the girl, bidding her begone. So she went on to the baron's brother at Scarsborough, a noble knight, with whom the baron's son was staying. When she gave the letter to his brother, he gave orders for the wedding to be prepared at once, and they were married that very day. Soon after, the baron himself came to his brother's castle, and what was to his surprise to find that the very thing he had plotted against had come to pass. But he was not to be put off the way, and he took out the girl for a walk, as he said, along the cliffs. And when he got her all alone, he took her by the arms and was going to throw her over, but she begged hard for her life. I have not done anything, she said. If you will only spare me, I will do whatever you wish. I will never see you or your son again till you desire it. Then the Baron took off his gold ring and threw it into the sea, saying, Never let me see your face till you can show me that ring. And he let her go. The poor girl wandered on and on till at last she came to a great noble's castle and she asked to have some work given to her. And they made her the scullion girl of the castle, for she had been used to such work in the fisherman's hut. Now one day, who should she see coming up to the noble's house but the baron and his brother and his son, her husband? She didn't know what to do, but thought they would not see her in the castle kitchen. So she went back to her work with a sigh and set to cleaning a huge big fish that was to be boiled for their dinner. And as she was cleaning it, she saw something shine inside it. And what do you think she found? Why, there was the Baron's ring, the very one he had thrown over the cliff at Scarsborough. She was right glad to see it, you may be sure. Then she cooked the fish as nicely as she could and served it up. Well, when the fish came on the table, the guest liked it so well that they asked a noble who kicked it. He said he didn't know, but called to his servants, Hey, send up the cook that cooked that fine fish. So they went down to the kitchen and told the girl she was wanted in the hall. Then she washed and tidied herself and put the baron's gold ring on her thumb and went up into the hall. When the banqueters saw such a young and beautiful cook, they were surprised. But the baron was in a tower of a temper and started up as if he would do her some violence. So the girl went up to him with her hand before her with the ring on it and she put it down before him on the table. Then at last the baron saw that no one could fight against fate and he handed her to a seat and announced to all the company that this was his son's true wife and he took her and his son home to his castle, and they all lived as happy as could be ever afterwards. The the thing I got from that story is like, everyone's trying to kill this little girl. Like, well, first <laughs> off, who was the dude who was like, okay, let me take, I'll take your youngest. It's okay. Like, I'll look after her. I know you. First off, the dad gives her away. That's terrible. And then as soon as she's given to this, uh, this next person, he throws her into a river <laughs> Yeah, yeah, he just hauls her off into the river. She lives and she goes to the fisherman. And then 15 years later, he discovers her and tries to have her killed. And like, that's such a that's such a weird thing to ask your brother to do. 
like immediately like, hey, what are you doing to my castle? Oh, uh, I was sent by your brother. Here's a note that he gave me. Yeah. It's like, please kill me. <laughs> well, it makes for a compelling bedtime story, I imagine. You know, it's got these uh, twists and turns and lots of perils, you know, and uh, just a very coincidental sort of everything brings itself back together in the end. Yeah. So how does it relate here? With Ed, it's just a similar image, I guess, with um, the the ring inside of the belly of a fish. I wonder, you know, you always think about like um, a pearl that you find in an oyster. And uh, I don't know, I think this is a common image, you know, of sort of riches found in this huge catch of a fish. I guess it's probably not uncommon as well if it's a, if it's a huge fish. It could probably probably find a lot of weird stuff. It's actually happened in real life. If you Google ring and fish real life, you can get some <laughs> articles of people finding actual rings in there. But I was thinking that maybe the story's theme of self-fulfilling prophecy could lay into Ed. Like Ed is destined to be a filmmaker no matter how far he tries to run away. Oh, yeah. I like that a lot. And because specifically because in the end, he does have to run from this ring, you know, uh, literally. But um yeah, I guess it doesn't uh, it doesn't end his filmmaking career necessarily. Like he doesn't throw his camera into the water. He tosses this ring away, uh, which we'll get to. Um, so yeah, I think we'll still see some films come out of uh, director Ed Chigliak. But anyway, after this dinner, he's got that dream of the American Film Institute Lifetime Achievement Award. The trophy of this award looks like um, the Leaning Tower of Pisa, and uh, of course, it's Ed's dream. He gets he gets called up to accept the award, and on his way, he shakes hands with Federico and uh, Steven Spielberg, who's got like long hair, the characteristic beard, and like the baseball cap. And uh, I thought it was interesting in his acceptance speech. He thanks uh, Francis. I'm guessing guessing it's Francis Ford Coppola. He thanks Marty. Um, you know, which he's given the nickname to. Um, Martin Scorsese, we've heard that in the past. Apparently, they're pen pals, uh, which is canon for the show. And uh, he also thanks Lena. And I was, I, th- I thought it was interesting. I was wondering who, you know, I, I don't, I'm not familiar with a director by the name Lena, but if I had to guess, it would probably be Lena Wertmuller, who was an Italian filmmaker. So that kind of fits in with the Italian theme here. Um, and she was the first woman nominated for Best Director for the film Seven Beauties in 1977. Though I don't think a woman won Best Director until, I want to say it was like The Hurt Locker, um, Catherine Bigelow. Wait, what? That was the first female director? Yeah, uh, pretty surprising, right? She's also the only woman to win Best Director still to date. That is ridiculous. I cannot... It's pretty surprising. Yeah. Yeah, (laughs) because, you know, there are many talented female filmmakers Obviously, not only American, but yes, very many like American uh, women filmmakers. Off off tape, but like, <laughs> and they say that like sexism doesn't exist. It's like, that's like definite proof. Yeah. Like, how can that be the only woman filmmaker to ever have won? Jesus Christ. Yeah. Um, I think directing has been sort of like a man's career for a little too long, obviously. I mean, like, it's kind of uh, surprising that it's such like a liberal art form, but I don't know, the way we recognize it, it's similar to like, you know, when you think about like a trombonist, I know this sounds crazy, but you never, you know, you think about certain instruments in an orchestra, uh, like the flute would be typically characterized like a, as a female instrument, maybe. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, whereas I don't know, like a trombone, I guess would be the would be like a male version. But uh, I I'd like to think these stereotypes have been blown away a long time ago. But at least with um, the best director Oscar, it it's still got a long ways to go. And yeah, at the end of this dream, um, well, he thanks these filmmakers. He says, I thought it was interesting. He says, I'm nothing without you guys. I'm less than nothing. I'm dirt. Well, bucks. I don't I didn't really know what that meant, but um, maybe just chalk it up to his whole acceptance speech starts to unravel because he, he later uh, begins to talk about, you know, home is where you're from and Sicily is where I'm from and you can only ever be from where you're from. Cause that's where you're from. Like, I, you know, he kind of like starts losing it and then he delivers that, um, the speech, you know, the, the last few words in Italian, which um, I'm still trying to translate. <laughs> <laughs> so we next see Ed going to the break and there's somebody there in the middle of it who turns out to be Federico Fellini. Well, yeah, Ed calls out to him, you know, he's like, is that Federico Fellini? And I think, um, Shelly is trying to take his order and, um, I think we're supposed to believe that only Ed can see this because no one else is reacting. And this sort of hallucinations, uh, these keep happening because he started shooting film again. And it's really cool because he'll see something like, uh, for instance, he sees a man um, splitting some wood, like some firewood. And when he brings his camera up and puts his eye into the viewfinder, it changes. He's Now he's looking at Federico Fellini, like drinking beer, maybe playing checkers or something with, with someone on a table. Yeah, we see what appears to be many Italians just going along with their daily lives. Uh, yeah, yeah. Trying to get suited with their dresses or they're playing, like you said, checkers. Uh, there's one where it looks like they're... I, I don't quite understand it. Let me, let me take a look at that scene one more time. <laughs> I, I remember like looking at it like multiple times. Let me make sure. Yeah, from what I can guess, they're operating a radio. It's two people sitting at a table and they got like this large black box yeah. with a ton of knobs on it. Yeah, it looks like they're maybe like tinkering with some weird electronics, right? Yeah, I didn't know if that was like, uh, is that something that Italians do? Oh, well, no, no, no. Well, that's like, I think that's what Ed sees in Sicily. And then when he brings the the film lens up, that's the um, oh. that's the Italian thing. <laughs> You're oh. like, what's, what is this Italian stereotype? They're tinkerers? They're ham okay. radio enthusiasts? <laughs> I was so confused. I was like, what is going on in that table? <laughs> Yeah, actually, now since you've taken the time, I want to try to find that because I was—I don't—I don't really know what they're tinkering with. I kind of want to see if I can figure out. It's twenty-eight forty-seven that you can get a pretty decent shot. Yeah, I don't know if I can say what that is. It definitely looks like some sort of like switchboard. It's got some knobs. There's also a small little um, tube TV on the table um, that looks to be broken open or like um, pulled open because we see the back of it on the ground. And there's a woman and a younger woman bringing some lemonade to these two guys. Uh, yeah, just a bunch of uh, electronics enthusiasts chilling in the in Sicily's. <laughs> I think they mention um, People's Park in this episode. I wonder if this is what People's Park is in Sicily. Oh, I'd like to think that. okay. But yeah, so, uh, but yeah that, the other image, uh, whenever Ed brings the viewfinder up, he's like, it's kind of strange. It's like this uh, little person who is um, mending a black dress, like a woman who's in a black dress. And, it's like all these, um, I guess you would say, typical background fixtures, characters of a Federico, uh, of a Fellini film. Just you, I think later we see like a cardinal, a bunch of nuns, you know. Um, yeah. All right. So after that, it looks like Ed decided to change up his wardrobe because now he is sporting a black fedora, 
black blazer with his t-shirt just all around looking very uh looking very italian yeah and uh yeah he's got the slicked back hair too which i think comes uh, a little earlier when he's like talking to joel um very brief scene he's like i've started shooting again i'm working without a script and uh <laughs> i love this little soundbite Ed, are you hallucinating oh yeah but not right now yeah i feel like that's like a classic i don't know that feels like an iconic quote like an ed chigliak quote <laughs> but um no yeah so we do see him go full fellini with this wardrobe he even orders a chianti at the brick and um shelly has to remind him you don't drink ed so he, ch- he changes his order to grape juice and i like that she brings him um grape juice on the rocks with a twist though he uh gulps it down pretty quickly what does uh with a twist mean uh usually with like a little wedge of lemon or lime like a little uh citrus Oh, okay. Got it. And it's this scene. I think it's a really cool conversation that he has with Chris here at the brick um, because Chris is kind of fascinated. Yeah, I forget what happens, but it's almost like a, it's almost like Ed snaps out of it and he kind of like looks down at his wardrobe. Oh yeah. Cause Chris is like, Hey, I like the new look. Um, and Ed's like, what are you talking about? And Chris uh, keeps pressing him. And then finally Ed like looks down at his clothes and he almost like gasps and like covers his mouth. He's like, Oh, Oh, Chris, I'm changing. <laughs> I love how he's like, <laughs> he's like the help. Stop it. I can't stop changing. Um, I love this. Yeah. It's the scene where Ed is asking Chris if an object can become you, if you can take over your right. life. Yeah. And he equates it with the film where somebody gets uh, the brain of like a serial murderer or something. Um, like Donovan's a crazy person. brain. Yeah. Yes. That's what he says. Uh-huh. And then eventually the brain takes over uh, the person so that now he is now the like crazy psychopath or something. Yeah. Yeah. I thought it was really interesting because I was thinking of Lord of the Rings when this was happened. One, oh. because there's a literal ring, but yeah. two, in there, there's a ring bearer. They got to destroy the ring or you're going to use it for power. But in either way, you no longer become just that individual. Like you're not just Frodo anymore. You are now the ring bearer. Yeah. Like the object becomes your identity. So I thought that was kind of maybe if we're going to go through some extra deeper analysis right here, we can interpret that to mean that Ed is no longer being Ed. He is now a Fellini knockoff at this point. He is now the possessor of this ring. That's a good point because, uh, yeah, I like that idea. Like this item kind of becomes your title with ring bearer, but you bring out a really good point because the externalization of this conflict is like, oh no, it's like taking over my body. But I think what is the realization at the end is that, you know, that's very scary, but there is sort of this internal conflict that's harder to illustrate. But um, I think is what Ed is really trying to avoid is he doesn't want to be that knockoff that you said, Charles. It's like, that's the real horror. But for us to understand it, we need to uh, externalize it in a way where it's like, oh God, it's like actually controlling my body, like like the Donovan's brain um, yeah, scenario. Yeah. But no, I love that. It's like, yeah, it's his whole struggle with uh, being a copycat. You know, it's really interesting too, because Chris even remarks to him that he's not wearing his leather jacket. And we've come to associate the leather jacket with being prime Ed. Like that is bona fide Ed Chigliak. It's a signature piece right there. But you could also interpret that as a little bit more of a sadder motion because that means you're limited to just that one article of clothing. Like that article of clothing is now who you are. They didn't go in that direction though. But if you wanted to rewrite the script, 
you could also make it to be like, you're not only defined by this one thing as well. Like you just move from one thing to another thing. Oh, I see. Yeah. Like the idea that it's not just that uh, he's leaving his old signature to become this knockoff. But uh, if you just think about that idea that the leather jacket Ed is in its way its own box. Um, but you're right. You know, that's not that's not necessarily a limitation that we've seen uh, as a conflict for Ed so far. You know, he's he's still a budding artist. That is part of his signature, but I think he's got a lot of room to grow, thankfully. Oh, before we leave the scene, I like um, how Chris mentions another callback to his uncle Roy Bauer. Uh, he says his his uncle had this hunting cap, basically like a hunting cap of invisibility. Like he said, it, whenever he wore it, the deer would could never see him, and he could you know score the big the big buck or whatever. That's such a cool trinket to have if you were a hunter. <laughs> yes, hunting cap of invisibility. I love it. So at some point, Ed bumps into this like Italian. Um, Apple man, I guess. Like, it's this dude carving an apple and eating it. I think he's supposed to be sort of like a Godfather tribute, maybe. I've never seen The Godfather. Oh, you should definitely, definitely check it out. Um, but d- just the idea of like sort of mobster type, maybe. I think it's this scene where Ed explains, expresses, you know, I'm becoming a knockoff. I'm stealing this uh, identity that's not mine. Or maybe it's taking him over. But, um, this uh here this is what the uh, italian man says to ed eduardo when are you going to get spartaned up yeah i tell you you're going to make a bigger movie you're going to be famous you're going to be rich and you're going to see a lot of pretty girls like you know what i mean wait i thought it was really funny he says you're going to see a lot of pretty girls and he does like this motion where he's like curling his hair with his hands and then he does like this sort of like I don't, I don't even, I don't know what he means. He says, you know what I mean? What, what are you talking about? I, uh, mm, let's keep, uh, <laughs> some figurative, some very like, um, expressive hand gestures that <laughs> I'm glad they cut away. They like kind of immediately cut away. I, I mean, I don't know if we should record this part of what I'm about to say, <laughs> but like, I heard it's very, I don't know if it's like true or if it's just a stereotype, but, uh, Italian speakers use their hands a lot when they oh. want to enunciate yeah maybe like that could be a stereotype but yeah you think of that you know yeah the person they, they like do the use a lot kiss. of motions yeah yeah they do a lot of motions i don't know if it's racist to say that like, <laughs> like i have I think no we're idea okay we're just remarking on how it's uh typically represented it it's probably a stereotype but this guy <laughs> is definitely leaning into that this actor um playing this italian man and he starts to get a little confrontational and that's when ed like looks to the distance and there's that sort of like a parade of these Fellini extras are starting to chase him and he's literally got to run from it. We were kind of talking about this earlier and uh, they chase him and he ends up taking off the ring, casting it back into Mount Mordor and destroying. <laughs> uh, no, he uh, he throws it into the, I guess it's like a the body of water, whatever that is. Uh, I think that's where he originally got it. Right, I guess, yeah, where he, where he had um, caught the fish probably. Yeah, going full circle. Um, is that the end of Ed? That this, is. Plot line? Yeah. Uh, he, for this particular one. I think he, uh, wipes the slate clean. I guess he's learned not to mimic someone for so long, but it's, uh, you know, I think all great artists steal. That's like a quote. So maybe to get out of this block for Ed, he needed to, uh, he needed to like imagine himself as Fellini for a little bit. So we go to our final plot lines. 
maybe uh, multiple. They're kind of tied together. It's uh, Mike Monroe, who was introduced in the last episode, returning again. Uh, just a quick checkup, Charles. What do you think of Mike in this episode? Uh, mm. <laughs> I guess he's fighting the good fight. <laughs> he's, um, yeah, I mean, I, I think I said, you know, I'm much more acceptable of him this this go around, but, uh, you know, I can't deny that the more time he spends on screen, the more it sort of takes away the, uh, energy of the, um, the will they, won't they of Joel and Maggie, which has kind of invigorated the story for so long. And maybe the problem is it got muddled too, too much. And they, they came really close to the, they will, you know, uh, that they had to kind of tangle around with the they won't a lot, and it's just back and forth between Joel and Maggie. So maybe maybe they thought this would uh, introduce a interesting triangle, but so far it's just kind of stealing the stealing the spotlight. Yeah. So it seems with Mike uh, in the episodes, we get much less focus on Joel. He's maybe in a handful of scenes in this episode. It's mostly focused on the three other plot lines that are happening. Uh, so far, if you told me that Mike was the original Joel, like we restarted Northern Exposure and instead of Joel coming <laughs> oh, to Sicily no. and being about him, it was being about Mike in Sicily, I don't think I would be as interested in the show. I, I really feel that Joel has a much stronger influence on the cast and on the setting than this particular character. Mike just seems like he is also part of the Northern Exposure Sicily cast. He doesn't feel like he's like the main character. Yeah, and I don't know if this is uh, Mike's fault or just the idea that this show is becoming a lot more character-driven in that, you know, like, Joel is still the central character, but uh, we start to go off on these tangents and really uh, live with some other characters. You know, we've talked about this before. There are plenty of uh, episodes of Northern Exposure. Some of them are pretty good in which Joel is really not even featured in the episode Hardly at all. He's not really a, a major character. Uh, so this is maybe another one of those episodes, but um, I think it's because Maggie is sort of the co-lead with Joel. Now that Maggie um, is sort of mingling here with Mike, it's uh, it's kind of pushing the spotlight away, as we're saying. You know, I don't know. We'll we'll see as it we'll see as we keep going with Mike. This could just be chalk it up to this episode is like one of those where Joel is not a central character. But yeah, I'm not. I, I think I'm with you, Charles. I'm not. Uh, I'm not as interested in a in a show about Mike Monroe than one about Joel Fleischman. Well, let's talk about Mike a little bit in this episode then. Okay. So we see that he's introduced uh, doing some charting of the stars. Maggie drops in on him to drop off some tapes of a book. Yeah, she um she it's like audio tapes. She put she has to put it in like a detox box. That's what Mike calls it. And I was wondering like um, what happens to those tapes when they go in that box? Like uh, you can see. Uh, um, this little, I think it's called a sanitizer. Uh, it has the logo Barnstead on it. I was trying to look up exactly how these machines work. I think at least this manufacturer, I think these machines like, uh, sterilize things with like high heat and high pressure. So I wonder if those tapes would even be playable after, uh, <laughs> cause I know tapes are very susceptible to, uh, magnetic inter you know, just like, uh, they could be wiped for, by magnets. So if, there's any magnetism happening inside that machine. When you take those out, they're going to be blank, you know? Oh man, that's really good. I didn't think about that. <laughs> um, sorry though. So Mike is like studying global warming, right? 
Yeah, so he's studying about greenhouse gas emissions, which is ahead of its time. This is before Al Gore gave his speech. Yeah. But he's really getting into them about the effects that they have, the emission standards that the automobile is allowed to produce and how it's being set back. And I really appreciate him trying to give off some quick facts about the dangers of climate change and global warming. But I also wanted to talk about this one for a little bit. Have you ever heard about the statistic that said that 100 companies were responsible for 71% of carbon emissions? Yeah, this is something that um, when we were growing up, Charles, uh, at least it's like everyone must do their part to uh, fight global warming, to recycle. You know, we can all do our part to uh, save the environment. But um, I think what I've learned, you know, in the past five, 10 years is that a lot of the problem is not going to be solved by everyone it's it's gonna it's majorly affected by as you said charles these uh, few big companies yeah so i wanted to dive into this a little bit more and find out some more nuanced opinions on this so initially that sounds really daunting 100 companies responsible for 71 percent of carbon emissions but i want to look deeper as to why we shouldn't support the argument that climate change is a symptom of capitalism or the markets or that individual choices don't matter in climate changes um For starters, where did this statistic even come from? Well, it comes from a Guardian report from 2017. And first things first, the word companies is extremely broad. It should be more like 100 producers. While, yes, most of the 100 are companies, seven of those are actually nations, which the report has classified as one producer. So, for example, Chinese coal and Russian coal are classified as producers, and they Mm. are the first and seventh largest producers on the list. So the number of companies would be much larger if we looked at companies within those nations. Also, the report might not take into account agricultural emissions, which is fueled by meat. It looks like it's only taken into emissions done by coal. But let's look into the capitalism or the markets and how they have a hand in climate change. Well, according to the report, 59% of emissions from those 100 producers are from state-owned enterprises. I'm not saying state-owned is inherently bad for the environment, but... A lot of the product is from countries which happen to have state-owned enterprises. So what this report does is that it at least shows that there isn't a clear danger to having private investment in these energy companies. In fact, deregulating the energy sector can actually increase the number of small renewable producers, which sounds counterintuitive, but Mm. really, if you deregulate the market... You no longer will have a stable price, but you'll have more competitors come in. And many of those new competitors will have cleaner, more renewable sources to draw from instead of the old grid line that they're working off of. Well, so hold on. It's a, uh, hmm? How does how that's the one thing. How would new producers uh, be cleaner? Yeah, so you can actually be incentivized now in order to do cleaner energy or to not to at least not rely on coal, right? But there. we were just talking about deregulating. Yeah, so when you deregulate it, that allows more competitors into the market rather than just one or two. So certain states are deregulated and certain states are heavily regulated as to who is allowed to run the grid lines of the energy. Yeah, so if you only allow one or two, your prices might be really stable. It's probably not going to change because if it got too expensive, then everyone would riot. They would say like, (laughs) we can't pay for this. 
you're now charging $1,000 for electricity. So you have to put it at a manageable price. But when you open up even more competitors, you can choose from which companies you want to. Now, I'm not here to tell you that deregulation is the answer. I'm just saying that it has the possibility of making small renewable producers increase. Yeah. And finally, I want to talk about individual choice and whether it matters or not. The fact of the matter is, is that these large fossil fuel producers are responding to people using fuel. So we're the driving force for them to even make it in the first place. The consumer has the final say. If the consumer did not do it, then they wouldn't produce it. And yes, even collectively individual actions is likely not enough to reduce emissions without reducing people's standards of living, even if we all tried to do it. But still, collective individual actions has a significant impact on carbon emissions. According to Vanderhurth and Steinman, by merely including the behaviors over which individuals have direct substantial control, the total emissions for all 281 million Americans in 2000 were 4 trillion pounds. This number is larger than the total for Sub-Saharan Africa, South America, and Central America combined. This points to the importance of policies that encourage and facilitate household and individual energy conservation, but also to influence the consumer choices. So what I'm saying on this is that, while yes, it's very hard to tackle this giant of a problem. But that isn't to say that you should just throw up your hands and say like, well, it's because of this reason that I'm not going to do it. It's because of these so-called 100 companies. I think it's very important to still do your part and that you can still have an influence on it if you change the collective mindset of everyone in these first world countries that use up most of the resources. Yeah, I see what you're saying. It definitely feels like most of the pollution is not coming from the everyday person. It's coming from these countless uh, producers that we've been talking about. But I do like the point you bring out. It's like there is some sort of control. There's some uh, amount of control that we can flex, I guess. I wonder what that is. Is it's just uh, consumers moving away from gas vehicles, from, you know, just what sort of ways we have to influence uh, these producers? Well, it's actually really interesting. So Mike brought up about aircrafts and how much they contribute to global warming. And I actually looked into that. So the aviation industry is actually responsible for around 5% of the global warming, which includes CO2 emissions and water vapor trails. And that doesn't sound like a lot, except only a small percentage of people fly. Only around 3% of the population take regular flights, yet that contributes to 5% of the global warming. So a single passenger flying domestic can produce 254 grams of CO2 for every kilometer. A long flight is 102 grams of CO2 per kilometer. An inner city train is 41 grams for every passenger mile. Traveling by coach is 28 grams of CO2 per kilometer. And driving alone in a medium-sized petrol car is 192 grams of CO2 per kilometer. But that can be cut down by sharing and carpooling. Oh, yes. So flying does contribute a whole lot to it. So <laughs> if you can take fewer trips, that would reduce the number of carbon yeah, emissions. Yeah. I like I thought that was crazy. Um Mike mentions in this episode, no one is factoring in jet aircraft. That's what he's saying about these uh aircraft. So I guess at the time they weren't factoring that into the into the idea of global warming or at least into these uh studies or reports. Yeah, no. It wasn't until later on that that started to gain traction. Yeah, I mean it's obvious this things uh, must have some sort of uh, polluting effect. So, yeah, I like that Mike is fighting the good fight right here. He's bringing up all these statistics. But I also have to say that, like, it's a real party bummer when you, you know, you talk about this stuff. 
Yeah. Um, and, you know, the, I think everything is like, sometimes it feels like everything's falling apart. But um, hey, we have Northern Exposure for right now. This is our Northern <laughs> Exposure time. Let's keep talking about um, Mike. Well, I do want to actually, because um, cause let's go back a little bit, because this will kind of tie into the Mike plot line. Uh, Maurice, uh, earlier in a scene, gets a package from his son, Duquan, uh, who is Korean, and it is some kimchi. And uh, so I thought this was a very interesting scene because uh, Maurice seems very upset. And from what we learned, the you know the episode where we met Duquan is, uh, you know, Maurice is kind of a bigot and wasn't necessarily ready to accept Duquan as his son. But um, so I thought we were retreading some of that, you know, like it seemed like Maurice is a little upset in this episode here. But, you know, I think it, it turns out that Maurice is actually more stressed with uh, this sort of guilt that he has because he hasn't yet added Duquan to his will. So I thought that was interesting. It kind of set up as if um, Maurice is like ashamed of having a Korean son. But no, the truth is he feels ashamed that he's not doing a you know, the, the right job as a father, maybe, albeit, you know, he's begr quite begrudging about it. Like he likes to keep that outward shell of, uh, pretending like he doesn't like to do this stuff. But I think I, I want to believe that Maurice has his heart in the right direction. I think he does. I, throughout the episode, you see him talking about how much he's going to give to him and his justifications for it. And his justifications seem valid. He's not saying like, oh, I don't want to give him that amount of money because I'm stingy. It's like, well, I need my own library to be able to stand on its own leg. I can't take too many resources from that. So that is why I'm only giving him, I think it was $17 million. <laughs> I'm, I'm not entirely too sure. And, and yeah, no, there's also that factor too. The part of the reason he's upset is not because of Duquan. He's just upset that, you know, he has to think about, I got to die one day and I got to lose all this stuff that, I like, this is my worldly possessions. So that's kind of bumming him out. Um, but no, you're right. He is, I think he's pretty generous. It's kind of heartwarming to see that, um, you know, whenever Mike is going through uh, Maurice's will at one point, we see all these things that he's going to um, give away to his friends in Sicily. Like I think Ed is going to get like a, like a Luger pistol. Um, <laughs> yeah. And Shelly is uh, getting like a, a vitrine? I'm not even sure what that is, but it sounds pretty fancy. Yeah, all of these are actually really smart tactics from Maurice because he's giving them gifts. And in 2020, right now, you can give gifts of up to $15,000, I want to say, and that's going to be non-taxable. That's another way that you can get around the estate tax, which is, ah. I'm feeling, is what Maurice is trying to get around. Yeah, I think I, I kind of blanked out in some of this, like... um legal jargon that happens in this episode, but, you know, there's definitely like, um, sort of an important code that Maurice has to follow with Mike, like to figure out the best way to do this. I think at one point Maurice is like, and I'm not sure why, but he says like, I'm going to, I'm going to be in here every six months at this rate. Like there's uh, so many changes and things is it's a, it's, um, it's, I guess, a, a big task. Yeah, because he's afraid that uh, Daquan's son could have children and then he has oh, to factor that in. Okay. But I would figure that a you know, a competent lawyer would be able to write language that would include that. Um, oh, yeah. I don't think it's very important for him to be like, oh, now I got to specify in my will what the grandson gets. Probably would just go to the son and the son will give what he wants. Well, maybe, uh, maybe this is part of Maurice being like, uh, maybe he really does 
like these people and want to give them specific things, you know, like part of the, re- maybe the reason is not so much that he's like worried about where it's going to go, but he's like, when I have a grandson now, I'm going to want to give him this now. You know, it's like, that's true. You know, so he could be, uh, he just could be, you know, thinking about other people, which again, I'm probably giving Maurice way too much, granting him too much than, than he deserves, hey. but Hey man, you got to get to that fifteen thousand sometime. You got to keep giving out fifteen thousand dollar gifts, man. It's just free money right there. But anyway, okay. So back to Mike and Maggie. Um, it's kind of in that scene when they talk about global warming and such that Maggie is um, maybe not fully understanding Mike. She's she's like, I don't understand how you can be constantly thinking about this stuff. Like it's kind of what we're saying, Charles. It's kind of a downer, and. Um, I like what Mike says. He says, what else am I going to do? And Maggie says, uh, you could play Scrabble or do a jigsaw puzzle, <laughs> just like anything else <laughs> than this, you know, constant worry. But um, anyway, what happens uh, in the next part with Mike and Maggie? Yeah. So Maurice decides that he's going to enlist the help of Mike to be his own lawyer, to write his will for him. And at first he's kind of out of the game. He's like, nah, I don't do that anymore. Uh, I'm worried that I'm going to be in contact with a bunch of different material that could trigger my allergic reaction and then maggie volunteers to type for him to help him out though i suspect that's for ulterior motives just to be having quality time with him yeah she kind of wants to get closer spend more time with mike and um i also it kind of reminded me of last episode where mike you know is constantly making up excuses not to go outside of his dome um Mm -hmm. and maggie seeing that as like oh no this is I can change this man. Like I can make, I can change him for the better. <laughs> so I, whenever Mike initially declined Maurice's uh, job offer here, Maggie feels like she can step in to, um, to I guess, help Mike be the best he can be. And, and I also agree, Charles. I think there is a bit of ulterior motive there to, to get closer to Mike. Still rocking the spacesuit, by the way. Uh, he's oh, kept yeah. the astronaut. <laughs> Again, it's supposed to weigh like 250 plus pounds. <laughs> He's the like, ground should be dented. Mike like takes off his shirt in a scene and he's got like rock hard abs and just like <laughs> super strong. He's lifting this spacesuit. Super jacked. <laughs> um, they work together pretty closely. There's a scene where Maggie gets a little too close to Mike when they're working together and there's like an awkward intimacy happening. And for me, I think there are scenes in this episode that have some decent chemistry between the two. But for me, that was a scene that was like, okay, there's, there's just no chemistry happening for me. I I do. It's meant to be awkward, but it's not flirty. It's just strange. Yeah. I thought so too. I thought that it was very, at the very most, it was just one-sided. Like it felt like Maggie was putting in most of the effort. Uh, It did not feel like Mike was receiving what she was putting down. So I thought that that was a very strange scene. It is funny because when Maggie is like, she, it's awkward, so she has to leave. When she's leaving, Mike is like trying to tell her, "No, no, stay." Um, and his uh, his hands are like in this. Um, what do you even call that? It's like these. Uh, that looks like something. Have you ever been to like a children's museum before, and they let you touch the stuff in the museum? That looks like one of those where they like they let the children touch it, but they just don't like safety precautions. Yeah, there maybe there's a word for this, but there's. There's no way for me to figure out how to call this, but exactly what Charles said. There's like an enclosed box and uh, you have gloves on the inside with uh, in which you can like stick your arms. So you can like work on these. For Mike, he's like working on these documents with his hands in these gloves 
and he's uh, completely guarded from uh, whatever's inside that box. But uh, so anyway, it's kind of funny because as Maggie's leaving, Mike is like trying to, you know, uh, follow after her, but he's kind of stuck inside of this glove box contraption. <laughs> yeah. I do want to say that earlier in that scene, whenever they're talking about the will and the logistics and justification of who gets what amount, Maurice is really disappointed that he has to pay, I believe he said 45% in the estate tax. So I looked into that. It turns out that in the time of filming around in the early 1990s, they still had the estate tax, at least statewide because all 50 states had one up until 2001 when they reformed the tax structure. So now only a handful of states have a state estate tax and even fewer have an inheritance tax. And Alaska is one of those states that has neither, doesn't even have a gift tax right there. So Maurice is really set for right now. <laughs> now he does have to pay the federal estate tax, but that only applies to 11 and a half million and up, which Maurice is worth more than that. You are right. But there is lots of ways around that. A lot of deductions, <laughs> a lot of discounts, a lot of loopholes you can use to lower your taxable amount. Like off the top of my head, for example, estates can be valued at fair market value to reduce the estate's value. So let's say you bought a house for $5 million back in the day. Maybe you threw too many parties in that house. Maybe you decided to, uh, you know, do some questionable stuff to it. You could depreciate the value and it could be worth $1 million so that when you gift it away, it's not at $5 million. It's a $4 million difference. Happens all the time. And there's also life insurance, trust, trust funds, donations. <laughs> a lot of stuff can reduce that. If Maurice is rich enough to be worried about being taxed at the 45% mark, he's got ways to reduce it. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, okay. So I'm trying to look through my notes here for this the next interaction with this whole plot line. And uh, I may be jumping ahead, but... I don't know exactly what spurs it, but Maggie does come back. <laughs> oh no, this is an interesting scene, but I thought this was just the strangest um, bit of writing that I've seen. Um, Maggie enters carrying a little Tupperware with grated carrots. And she says, I brought you some grated carrots. She hands it to Mike who receives it, opens the lid, sniffs it and says, mm. and then closes the lid. What is, I don't know, it's like, what is that scene? It's very challenging for an actor to do that, Lee. <laughs> it was a very strange interaction, and especially after the the awkward chemistry that was happening in the last scene. But um, I thought this was an interesting scene because uh, this is where they sort of lay it on the table. And I, I like the way it's staged. Maggie and Mike are sitting across from each other, and in between them is a, a chessboard, and it's made of this sort of like, see-through glass or acrylic or something. So you can like clearly see through it and it's still sort of, a, um, I don't know, you get the metaphor of like like seeing through something, but also sort of this um, combat of the minds too, because you've got this chessboard in between them and they're trying to negotiate their, I, I don't know, the terms of their friendship. Oh, I get it. That's really clever. So you're saying they're like, they're plays, but they're transparent because you can see through them. Yes. Thank you. Yeah. You you really, <laughs> we alley-ooped it there. I, I was like trying to figure out how to <laughs> verbalize that, but yes. Uh, so they agree, I guess, to be platonic friends. Yeah. That is how they try to end it, that you can tell that Maggie is obviously having some internal conflict. Yeah. But I like it. I like it right now. They're taking it slow. They like each other. They're not going to act on it. And, um... I don't know why, but uh, Mike is sort of invigorated. 
because he asks Maggie to go out for a walk. Whereas, you know, in the last episode, she had to try a lot of different ways to get him uh, out of his bubble. And uh, after this conversation, which, you know, might be a letdown if you would imagine Mike being in love with Maggie, maybe. We don't know that for sure, but I think he likes her. Uh, no, he's he's pretty excited. He's invigorated, wants to go for a walk. Yeah, they go for that walk outside. He's saying the air is sweet. Uh, there aren't a lot of... Uh, dangerous chemicals outside. Apparently, the weather's good. And they see that bird. See that curlew. Right, the curlew. And this, uh, you know, as this episode is winding down here, it's also sort of paralleling the, um, you know, the relationship with Bob, the flying man, and Marilyn. You know, they're not, they agree not to be a thing. They're not going to be like a romantic partners, but uh, we still get that sort of, they've got a connection. And the closing nice. song here. According to Moose Chick, it's supposed to be That's Amore by, on Moose Chick, it says Dean Martin. So um, I don't know. I actually tried to find that recording, and the only thing that came up was Deanna Martin uh, singing the song That's Amore. But I got to say the song on the DVD, it's uh, called Lover's Glance by Greencastle Homer, um, which is actually, I guess, a name for the film and TV composer Stephen Edwards. Um, Anyway, this song on the DVD... Uh, not too bad. You know, I kind of like it. Um, maybe it's just me, but I've, I've never been a fan of that's Amore. <laughs> that, how does that go? It, it doesn't have to hook like, well, that's, um, well, it's like, well, I don't know if we can sing it. It probably doesn't matter, oh, but, <laughs> but the lyrics are like when the moon hits your eye, like a big pizza pie, that's Amore. Yes. <laughs> that's the one. It's a silly, like accordion, like jaunty tune, I guess, but. I've never been a fan. So I think that about wraps up all our plot lines for this episode, but something that has been um, going back and forth in my mind today, why is this episode called On Your Own? I think it's about not being in a relationship and trying to be single, trying to find out who you are. Uh, That's my guess. Yeah, I like that a lot. That didn't occur to me. I think that definitely fits. If I had to place it myself, um, I'm tying it into the Ed storyline. Like, uh, maybe he was, no, that doesn't make, I'd like yours better. <laughs> I was going to say like, he's on his own trying to, uh, find his own voice maybe, but no, nah, I like your, I like yours a lot better. It could also be, uh, Joel being on his own. Doesn't have anyone. <laughs> oh, oh no. <laughs> Poor Joel. Um, well, we've reached that part of our podcast where we bring on a guest, typically someone who has never seen the show before just to kind of get that fresh perspective to see if this episode kind of stands up on his own. You know, I was, I was, uh, when I was watching this episode, I was thinking it would be kind of interesting for an outsider to watch this because, uh, Maurice, like in the first scene with Maurice, he talks about a Korean son. It's like all these, uh, callbacks to, you know, the flying man. It's like, I guess this guy is a recurring character. You know, I'm very curious to see what our guest has to say about this episode, you know, watching it for the first time. So our guest is Jeff Buck. He's a comedian and he's got his own podcast called Who's the Worst, where he talks about, you know, the worst of a certain topic. I think, for example, it's like, who's the worst Pokemon? Who's the worst Power Rangers villain? Uh, So it's a lot of fun. He usually has a lot of guests on. And Charles, I think we're going to be on an episode coming up soon. I guess we'll, we'll mention it here later in the episode if we know. The episode is out. Charles and I joined Jeff to talk about who's the worst ghost. We'll put a link to that podcast in the description. Jeff, thanks for 
watching this episode. Let's see what he's got to say about On Your Own. Hey, you guys. This is Jeff Buck. I just watched season four, episode six, titled On Your Own of Northern Exposure. And this is kind of my overall review. I've never seen the show before, so this is my first time seeing it. And I um, I think it's very strange. It's very weird. Um, I will say that. Uh, right away, it felt like a David Lynch meets David Byrne acid trip. And I think that's specific maybe to this episode because it seems like um, there were these characters coming to town that were dressed up like slinkies and giant hands and blocks with toilet paper for eyes. It was very weird. Um, and I know that it only happens rarely because the guy who does the commercials for Walgreens was the radio DJ of this town that the show is set in. And he announced that this happens once a year or something along those lines. So that was, that was really strange right out the gate. So that kind of set the tone for my perspective for the whole show throughout it. But I did like a lot of these characters. I loved Ed. He seemed like a Keanu Reeves burnout type of guy. Um, really enjoyed him. Uh, resonated a little bit with him. Maybe saw my younger self of me and him, maybe even a current self at times, if I'm being honest. I liked Bob. He was one of the guys that came into town with the Slinkies. Loved Bob, actually. He was one of my favorites. He couldn't talk, uh, or he chose not to talk, rather, because at one point he finally breaks his silence and tells, uh, says, I love you, to this lady who I'm going to call Roseanne because I don't remember her name, but she spoke like Roseanne spoke and um, was his love interest, and she wouldn't take him back. They used to have a relationship at one point. She was like, no, I'm sorry, Bob. And I really liked my favorite quote of the show. was uh, something she said. She said, words are heavy. They weigh you down. If birds talk, they couldn't fly. And I was like, man, that's, that's some deep stuff they're throwing here in Northern Exposure. Um, so I like the deep quotes from time to time. And the silly quotes, too. I think one, someone asked Ed at one point, are you hallucinating? And he goes, yes, but not right now. Um, I really thought that was funny. So I think there's some funny writing in the show, some funny imagery, obviously, uh, and some stuff that I just didn't really care for or care about. I don't care about Mike and his bubble phobia, uh, germophobics. I couldn't really care about Maurice and his will. I just didn't have attachment to these characters. And that could be because I'm in mid-season four, episode six. I'm sure if I'd watched this show from the get, maybe I'd have a little more stakes into it. But I really like these weird sideline um, characters and storylines. Uh, that seemed entertaining for me, at least a first-time viewer. Um, yeah, I think that's kind of about it. Thank you guys for having me on the podcast. I'm glad I can give you a review. Oh, also, you asked me to do a question. You said, have you ever been in a situation where you were stuck or didn't want to be in a place, and in the end, you hopefully gained something or found yourself changed for the better? Um, yes, I feel like I've been in a situation, I'll just say, specifically a job. I feel like I've been stuck at a job. I had to be there because of a financial situation. I needed the income. Um, and I gained, what I gained from it was a new skill set, a new work ethic, and um, new relationships from coworkers and things of that sort. So I think that those three things shaped me into being a better person, even though I didn't want to be there. Um, I learned a lot and I progressed as a person from it. I know I'm being very vague in the details of this answer, but I'm just going to leave it at that. And hopefully um, you're satisfied with that response. Thank you guys for having me. And um, if I knew a cool slogan for the show, I'd say like, see you on the North Shore or something that they would say. But obviously I've only watched this one episode. So thank you guys. Okay, that was Jeff with his guest commentary. David Lynch meets David Byrne. I love it. Yeah, I think, uh, I mean, we've definitely had this show compared to uh, Twin Peaks in the past. You know, they kind of ran concurrently at one point, kind of in the same time period. 
uh, you know, weird, strange, small town vibes. And uh, David Byrne, you know, you could kind of correlate here with like the whole Moomenschanz vibe of it. Like I know David Byrne uh, just recently came out with, uh, what is it, American Utopia, which is sort of this Broadway production that definitely evokes, you know, some of those ideas of theater and like stage and, and stuff like that. Yeah, very showy individual. <laughs> Love his performances. And I didn't quite catch this one. I think the joke sailed past my head, but did he compare Chris to a Walgreens DJ? So uh, I totally forgot about this, but um, John Corbett, who plays Chris Stevens, also does a lot of voice work and his voice is featured in the commercials for Walgreens. I think that's Jeff instantly like, recognized that voice. Like like uh, recent commercials or like I- I commercials in the 90s? No, 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 not in the 90s. I don't know if they're like recent, like 2020. Um, that's a good question. Let me see if I can pull up a, a Walgreens commercial. I don't know if we'll be able to, I got, maybe we'll be able to play like a bite of it, but um, let me see. It's free advertising. Yeah. <laughs> relief is good and fast relief is better. Good thing Walgreens gets you in and out in no time. Okay, just like a quick glance online, I'm finding uh, some commercials with his voice in it. Uh, mm-hmm. These were posted like in 2013, 2014, around that time. So recent, you know, not not in the uh-huh. Northern Exposure days, but uh, I don't know if he's still the spokesperson, like the voice of Walgreens, but, <laughs> you know, he's ingrained in there, at least for, for Jeff. I think I would, honestly, I don't know if it's worth telling of my personality, but I would love to voice a corporation. <laughs> <laughs> That's uh, that sounds like such easy money right there, and it, it can't be that much more work. Like the, the commercials only like two minutes. Like it's probably only takes like a day's worth of work. No, yeah, to vo- get the voice lines down. Voice acting in general sounds like a lot of fun. You know, you just got to uh... no, 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 no. But like, there's a difference between voice acting for like a television show, uh-huh, like uh-huh. really serious, or uh, voice acting for a commercial. Like, yeah, definitely. The, CBS does not care if you have like <laughs> immense range. They just want you to sell their products. I, I think that's fantastic. Like it's, you don't. Yeah, it's definitely. Sorry to, to interrupt you. It's definitely a specific skill that is uh, probably a little bit different from acting in Northern Exposure, but st- but still, you know, it's its own skill set of uh, being a salesperson. But but yeah, yeah I think yeah, you're exactly. right. It's probably a lot easier. Because you don't have to show up on set. You could probably just record from home if you have the right setup. Ah, uh, that's that's the dream gig, I guess. <laughs> so uh, again, we get another Keanu Reeves comparison. I think some of our guests in the past uh, can feel that Ed has has some strong Keanu vibes. We got this. Uh, I like that Jeff calls him sort of a Keanu Reeves burnout, and uh, how he can how he can very much relate to that um, persona. Yeah, we're getting a little bit of a backstory on Jeff right there, who also <laughs> answered the question very vaguely, but I, I respect his choices for keeping it that way. There must be a particular reason for that. I can only <laughs> guess that uh, maybe it was like a strange job that he was working. I Yeah, I've got no idea. Or maybe like uh, he's signed some NDA or something. No, I'm sure it's not that uh, mysterious. But you can tell from his answer, it's very much like, are Joel Fleischman's, you know, situation. You know, Joel had to be in Alaska because of a financial situation. Uh, and there he learned sort of a new work ethic, you know, how to interact with patients and how to treat his patients. And he gains a lot of new friends, you know, this colorful cast of characters in the town of Sicily. And, uh, you know, it, you know, not everybody is a Jewish doctor from New York, but 
this idea shows you like how universal that this feeling can be. You can relate to this situation or this feeling of being outside of your comfort zone and growing from your experiences there sort of, uh, I don't know, it's, it's a very universal story in a way. Yeah, I think that's one of the romantic things about working a, um, what, what do you call them? Like a part-time jobs or like side gigs? No, yeah. Like not a job that you retire with. And mm-hmm. there's nothing wrong with those jobs. I'm trying to make that clear. Uh, but it's the ones in which you do uh, in between of when you would get your quote-unquote real job. And those jobs are usually really fun if you're with the right people right yeah. there. So like the job might be like, blah. It might be like, whatever. But you know, you know, you're with some wonderful people. You're doing probably something that's not extremely excruciating. So, <laughs> hopefully, you know, it's probably a, yeah, hopefully. So it's probably like a fun period of time. Yeah, it's about surrounding yourself with the right people and having the right mindset too as a big part of it uh, to kind of view just like your everyday activities as uh, what what skills you can gain. I think uh, Jeff mentions gaining skills, new work ethic, new friends. Um, yeah, it's all a state of mind, I guess. I've always thought this was something I've always thought that we should do in uh, the United States is that whenever you get to your senior year of high school, you should dedicate like a month, maybe like a month and a half, where you just work a different job every single week. Wow. Like literally they would just send you to like a different thing. Not like anything major, like yeah. uh, go handle a nuclear power plant or anything <laughs> like that. But you know, like maybe go shadow. Yeah, yeah, like shout mm-hmm. out some individual. You just do one every single week and just get like a wide range of expectations. I think that could be really fun. Shout out to uh, our high school teacher, English teacher, Charles, uh, Miss McFarland, because, well, we didn't do that every week, but uh, one of our projects um, as we were getting closer to graduation was to sort of pick a career and shadow someone in our town, you know, in our city who had that that profession and just to kind of like put yourself in those shoes I remember I picked um, an architect because I thought I wanted to go into architecture. I was really into drawing and art, and I wanted to you know, find some sort of career path that would go that way. And uh, just remember the the day-to-day, I don't know, job of being an architect seems so boring to me. <laughs> I had done a newspaper uh, mm. journalist. Nice. I went to the local newspaper publication and she kind of introduced me around the place and she let me write a piece. We like drove back nice. to the high school because there was like some sort of track meet going on or something. And she was like, all right, you can write the story and we'll publish it on the uh, local paper. And I was like, oh, sweet. And so I thought it was a really fun one right there. You're a published journalist. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Dig nice. up the clips, man. I'm in there. <laughs> um, that's fascinating. Uh, let's see. What else does Jeff say? Uh, he compares Marilyn to Roseanne. He he didn't uh, he didn't remember her name, but he said she sounds like Roseanne. And you know, I haven't seen the show Roseanne in a long time. Does that does that give you that sort of comparison? I have no idea. I've never You've seen, never seen. <laughs> I've never seen Roseanne. Yeah, I can't say I'm very familiar, but uh, I think I see where Jeff's going with that. Uh, and he also remarks on the sort of depth of the writing, kind of packing a lot of poetry in there. With the, I think it's Marilyn's line when she talks about uh, words are like. Like rocks, they weigh you down. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Words are heavy. If birds could talk, then they couldn't fly, which still works. It's been a few weeks since we recorded the first half when I heard those words for the first time and hearing it for the second time. Still think it's really well written right there. Yeah. Very eloquent. Yeah, yeah. I think uh, I think in our original discussion, I might have said it's a little cheesy or a little saccharine, but uh, 
you know, you can't deny that it's, uh, it's some beautiful poetry, you know, if it's placed in sort of this, um, corny little, I don't, I don't want to call it corny. It's a, it's a pretty love story. I, I always really like Bob the flying man. Uh, it's just such a charming actor. I think it's almost like cheating though. Whenever you introduce <laughs> the themes of flight into anything, you can warp it into any, uh, symbolic measure that you yeah. want. And that's the beauty of the word. It's got a lot of, uh, yeah, it's got a lot of um, mileage, that that idea, for sure. And apart from that, I think uh, the last thing we should touch on with Jeff's analysis commentary here is he's not a big fan of the Mike storyline. And, you know, he says, you know, this is his first episode that he's watched. So maybe he's just seeing this out of context. But I think, uh, Charles, when we were talking about this episode, we were remarking about this plot line with Mike and uh, Maurice. Uh, I mean, even the the whole idea of the will and that sort of storyline was not very exciting. It's It felt very tacked on. I think mostly that storyline was there to facilitate uh, what's going on with Mike and Maggie, which I, I recall, I think, uh, was saying the chemistry was not always, wasn't always on in some of those scenes. And... Uh, you know, by the way, that means Maurice has very little to do in this episode just to kind of be uh, a wheel, like a third wheel to that storyline. Yeah, I would completely agree. And I would also say that that plotline exists also to introduce the idea that Mike was a lawyer. Oh, yeah, yeah. Because that has uh, that was part of his introduction. He's like, he's an ex-lawyer. So we actually get to see him do some some lawyery stuff in this episode, which is nice. You know, they they laid those breadcrumbs and now they're delivering on this. I kind of like him acting as this, uh, uh, you know, this lawyer character instead of bringing in just like a one-time person. That That's another use for Mike if we've got to have him around, <laughs> put him to work, I guess. <laughs> well, that about does it for Jeff. Jeff, thanks again for watching the episode and recording this. And uh, thanks for having us on your podcast. I don't know if I mentioned this already, but Jeff has a podcast of his own. It's called Who's the Worst? You know, like, um, oh, we did talk about this. It's like, you know, who's the worst Pokemon? Who's the worst Power Ranger villain? And Charles, we're joining him for the episode, Who's the Worst Ghost, which is already out. So we'll put a link to that episode. But definitely go check out his podcast. It's a lot of fun. He's got a lot of great guests, lots of, uh, you know, other comedians on the show. And Charles, we'll talk next week about season four, episode seven. It's called The Bad Seed. You got any predictions for that? Uh, the Bad Seed. Um, wild guess. I'm going to predict that it's something about Johnny Appleseed. <laughs> so the seed being uh, something to do with uh, botany or plants or, or trees. Yeah. I'm going to take it for its literal meaning. I'm probably wrong, but I'm going to guess that there's some sort of a some sort of tree or it's some like sort of evil, grass. An evil Johnny Appleseed, like the evil twin <laughs> of this guy. Yes, yes. Oh, he uh, made his way to Alaska. There you go. Okay, well, Charles, I'll talk to you next week. All right, I'll see you next week. Northern Overexposure Podcast is edited by Lee. Our theme music was remixed by Matt Jackson. Thanks to Laser Kitties for the podcast artwork. And thanks to Jeff Buck for being our guest analyst. If you'd like to write in, you can reach us at northernoverexposurepodcast at gmail.com, at northernoverpod on Twitter. And if you like the show, please consider becoming a patron at patreon.com slash northernoverexposurepodcast. And of course, thank you for listening. Only at Applebee's, there's no place like the neighborhood. Open until midnight or later.